Today's vehicles come with many types of driver assist technology, but will the vehicles of the future be completely driverless? Steve Karamias from the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute explores the current and future state of autonomous vehicles. Transportation infrastructure. It's what keeps our economy moving and gets people safely where they need to go. But maintaining safe, reliable infrastructure assets is a complex challenge that requires innovative solutions. I'm Nick Frank from Agile Assets, and I'll be your guide as we navigate through the complex and evolving world of infrastructure asset management. My guest today is Steve Karamias. He is a senior research associate at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute. He has spent more than 30 years conducting research on vehicle dynamics and road profile measurement and interpretation. For the last two years, he has been working on sensor fusion algorithms for automated vehicle applications. Steve, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. So today we're talking about autonomous vehicles and asset management. But before we really dive into that, can you tell me a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute? Yeah, thanks. So my core knowledge is really in uh, vehicle dynamics and uh, road profile measurement and interpretation. You know, I've been here about 30 years sort of helping out with research projects in a lead role most of the time, but not officially. And, you know, a lot of our research centers around things that have been building toward automated vehicles like advanced driver assistance systems, things like adaptive cruise control and automatic emergency braking. And, you know, so you, it's interesting that over the last 30 years, you could see our research portfolio sort of transition from traditional vehicle dynamics into sensing and control and that sort of thing. And so, so a logical outcome of all that is now a lot of our research is on automated vehicles or connected in automated vehicles. So, you know, I've, I've been very heavily involved in that recently. Uh, I've certainly been a witness to it over three decades. Um, but, you know, my role is largely technical. I don't think a lot about policy. I think about more, more how than why. But, but it, it all maps back to, um, again, really vehicle dynamics and interaction with the roadway. Well, I'm excited to dive into the how with you today. Let's just dive into our topic, which is autonomous vehicles. Uh, so the big question, Steve, is, is what are autonomous vehicles? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so there's a lot of discussion about that. If you, if you go on the web or you begin to look at this, one of the first things you're going to encounter is uh, an SAE standard, Society for Automotive Engineers. The number is J3016. And they tried to answer this question, right? And so they, they punted in a way that's a very complicated thing, but they've defined a bunch of levels. And so, uh, and I'll give you a little map of that. There's sort of, if you don't mind, there's, there's a level zero, which means the system is warning you, but you got to figure out what to do. So like a lane departure warning system, you know, beeps and things. Then there's a one and two that are kind of lateral and longitudinal control. So if you have a lane assist system, a lot of new cars have that. That's a level one system. Uh, adaptive cruise control is a level one system. So things that we can buy, but you still need to stay there, be alert. You know, you, you cannot stop looking at the road. You can't count on the car to do everything right. The level two is really if it's doing both of those at the same time. So what I would say is the automated vehicles are three and above. So a level three thing, and there's some of these on the market, will completely take over for some era. So if you have something that has like a traffic jam chauffeur, 
where you can just sort of not pay attention and it'll warn you when it's time for you to pay attention again. That's considered level three. There's some automated highway driving, you know, where all the conditions are great. There's good stripes. You know, there's not as much going on. It's not a cluttered environment. Uh, and four and five are the, sort of the true automation. And that that those are very rare. Level four could be like an automated taxi or a shuttle that you would see. You know, I can look out the window and there's a shuttle in a research complex, but it's only allowed to go in the parking lot. So you're ne you don't have to pay attention. You never expect to have to pay attention. There might not even be controls. And then there's this kind of uh, level five that's sort of a, it's, I wouldn't say it's a myth, but it doesn't exist in practice yet. And that's, you know, it's automated everywhere under all conditions. You don't expect it to hand over. And an important distinction that a full automation is, it's not geofenced. It means it doesn't have to have a map. It doesn't have to have a lot of prior knowledge. You just turn it loose on the world and you don't even have to think about it. Uh, that we have not seen. A, a, a dirty little secret of the automated vehicle world is even in the pilots that you see in urban areas, that's level four. There's, there's somebody sitting back at the, you know, at the ranch and they're watching the vehicle so that if it shuts down or has a problem, they can take over. And, you know, it seems to us like it's fully automated. It's not. It's almost like there's a, a drone operator sitting at home making sure. So the, sorry, that was a long answer to a short question, but um, the real automation is starting to show up in those traffic jam chauffeur systems and the automated highway driving. The level four is kind of pilot status now. And, and I, I would argue we have not seen a level five system where there is no intervention at all and no restrictions on its operation. We have not seen that out in the world yet. There are people that will claim we have, but if you ask them enough questions, they are still watching what's going on. And I think at this point, too, people probably do feel slightly more safe that maybe we're not there yet. Maybe not. Maybe we'll dive into when we're going to get to level five later in, in the episode here. Uh, so as we're looking at the technology in the cars, let's say such as the sensors, you know, you touched on some of those level zero to two, which is the lane assist, maybe the self-parking side of it that I know a lot of newer cars have as well. How does the technology in the automated vehicles differ from technology like that? It does, it does differ a bit. You know, you've got the level one and two, you're going to have probably radar to see if you're, you know, if something's getting near you or you're getting closer to it in cameras. So one thing you'll see in automated vehicles is there's just more of those. They have to surround, they get, need to know more of your environment. So instead of just looking forward, maybe there's radar and cameras looking in a lot of different directions. Uh, there are a lot of other things that turn out to be important. Uh, one thing that a lot of automated vehicle folks do is they also will have a LIDAR sensor, uh, and that's kind of a big deal. It's expensive, and it's a fire hose of data. So, you know, it has, you know, it's got a lot of really good advantages. Radar can tell you really well how far away something is and if it's coming toward you, and cameras can tell you at what angle something is and maybe maybe how big it is in your view, but, you know, something that's big and close, or I'm sorry, Big and far away looks the same as little and close. So you have to use those two together. With LiDAR, you sort of get both, but it comes at a cost. It takes a lot of computational power to recognize a car with a LiDAR sensor. And in an automated vehicle, you have to do it in real time. You can't do it later. It takes cost to power it. The unit cost is high. Uh, so there's a little bit of a schism between our, the developers about whether you're going to use that or not. So that is one thing you'll see. Another thing is that, uh, you know, your vehicle's already doing a lot of things to sense its own motion, how it's accelerating, you know, the vehicle, you know, braking system can tell if the road is slick, stuff like that. That gets substantially uh, shored up by more sensors. And so you'll have GPS and maybe a better 
set of accelerometers or gyroscopes on your car to, to do a better job of knowing your own motion. Um, a very important X factor in the whole thing, and I'm sure we'll get into this more, is connected vehicles. So I already mentioned that at high levels of automation, we have to use a map and that you know we need a lot more sensors for a fully automated vehicle than we do for some of the systems we already see on the market. That job is much easier if you have a map and you have other things telling you your surroundings. Well, for a connected vehicle, you can have the infrastructure tell you your surroundings. So it takes a lot of pressure off of the sensing function. Uh, and so that, you know, there's this sort of um, fork in the road really about, and then maybe even a chicken and the egg problem If connected vehicle technology got deployed widely the way we design automated vehicles would change quite a bit. And it, you know, it would mean less expensive sensors, less sort of weird mounting configurations. Um, of course, now you have to trust the, you know, the, the infrastructure to tell you what's really there. And in, in return, you have to tell the infrastructure things about what your car is and what its intentions are. But uh, if, if you just sort of think into the near future about the, what kind of sensing configurations you would get uh, if connected vehicles get deployed, that equation changes a lot. But really the difference between what we have now and what we're gonna have is just sort of more sensors over, over a panorama instead of in one direction or another for the specific job. Of course, that raises unit costs, it raises computational demands. It, you know, it adds more stuff to your car, more things that can break. Uh, and you know, the people are working that out. But, but there, there is a step change in costs when you add LIDAR, but there's also a step change in capability because it can tell you not only what direction something's coming from, but sort of how big it is. And we're getting better and better at even being able to tell what it is. And is that technology, the, the vehicle to vehicle, is that something that you can almost retroactively do? So if we're moving in this autonomous vehicle world and we've got new cars being released that, that have that technology, but there's still someone driving a car from 2005. Is, is that something that we would be able to retroactively add to older cars in an efficient way? Or we just have to wait till everyone with a car previous to that technology catches up with a newer vehicle. You can't add it now. It's the cost is is crazy. So it's not it's unlikely. Anything that comes on the market is going to have to come on the market through fleet replacement. And so you know, I don't know what the the yearly sales of cars are, but it's it's a small percentage of the fleet. And so that's part of what's going on. In fact, that's part of why. Uh, you know, the connected vehicle stuff is sort of stuck. And, you know, there, there's a little bit of a regulatory argument going on right now that, for example, the uh, FCC is saying, well, gee, we made a wave band available for connected vehicles, but you didn't start using it fast enough. And the auto industry is saying, well, we only sell, you know, something like 10 to 20 million cars a year. So it, it's going to take some time. So the, the point you raise is extremely important that uh, any of this is going to have to sort of happen through attrition, right? That that we're not all gonna suddenly buy new cars and not everybody can afford the sort of high-end version of everything. So even if we knew exactly how to do everything right now safely, uh, we would still have to wait for the fleet replacement. So technology, finances, and money are some of the challenges posed to autonomous vehicles. Uh, how about environments? Does environment pose a challenge for AVs, you know, for example, uh, you know, an autonomous vehicle driving on a country road that has no striping, things like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and you, you just mentioned the number one issue in this whole thing. You know, I, through the last year, I've talked to people about what they, you know, what infrastructure thing do you want? 
if you're an auto person for autonomous vehicles and everything you read, um, lane markings is the biggie. That's sort of the, you know, but I know people sometimes sort of um, almost uh, condescendingly will repeat something three, you know, timing, timing, timing. Well, this would be lane markings, lane markings, lane markings. That's right now today, that's the biggest one. And so, you know, as you mentioned that if you're in a rural road, there just may, might be less upkeep. Uh, the other thing about lane markings is if you read enough, there's a big effort underway to standardize and like make them all six inches wide, make them kind of retro reflective, make it so LIDAR can pick them up easier. But even at that, then you say, well, gee, what do we do when there's a lot of glare and you're driving toward the sun or there's too much shade or there's so much water on the road that, you know, I still can't pick it up. So that is really huge. And the, the rural road problem you bring up is a particularly interesting one for two reasons. If you're just using automated vehicle sensors, you need to see things. Every, all those sensors we were talking about are line of sight. And so you need sight distance. You know, if you're, if you're in a winding road with a lot of trees on the roadside, or there's a lot of vertical curvature or whatever, those sensors can't see anything until you can see it. There's got to be a straight line toward it. If we use connected vehicle technology to help with that, which you can do, that's part of why connected vehicle technology is great. If something happens three cars in front of you and your radar can't see it, but that car is reporting, hey, I just slammed on the brakes. You better, you know, heads up. The same kind of thing could be helpful in a rural road, but that's the last place that investment's going to happen, right? So if you look at all the connected vehicle deployments, a very large percentage of them, most of them are in urban environments that are, you know, dense environments with a lot of traffic. There, there are some urban corridors, but it's, it's very few and it's harder to justify the expense given, you know, the, the level of traffic. So you asked the question in, in a very perfect way that, you know, dense urban environments versus rural roads, for any, any of the ways that you sort of view what might happen in the future is, uh, is a good way to make that distinction. But the, everything you read, the, the top thing on the list is markings and it, it kind of outweighs everything else. And, you know, there are other things about Signage right now has to be something a human can understand. Well, it turns out that writing things in English letters is not necessarily the best way for a camera to notice what's going on. And, and there's a lot of neat little things about that. I and mean, we had a project here where um, they hired a cybersecurity expert who was very good at computer hacking and sort of online stuff and everything that, to fool a uh, camera system that would look around for speed limits, right? And we all thought, oh, he's going to do some magical computer thing. Well, he made a T-shirt that had a fake road sign on it with a wrong number. And he walked in front of the car and the car thought the speed limit was higher and it took off. But markings and signage and traffic control devices, making those more visible, keeping them in better maintained. And, and there's a, an effort underway already to make, just make it more uniform. Do it the same way everywhere. Those are biggies when you when you dig in. Now, technology changes. And so those might not be the biggest story five years from now. But over the last five Everyone you ask will give you the lane marking answer. Sure. And you kind of touched on it too, is, is the talking with the signs. So how does that work? How does that communication take place between the autonomous vehicle and, and those hopefully, you know, uniform signs, signals, lights, and, and things of that nature? There's three ways that people sort of talk about it, right? There's um look, I just have a camera on my vehicle. I don't expect anyone in the world to cooperate with me. And I just need a way to find to recognize these things. So there's, there's piles and piles of papers and there's contests and everything about, you know, how well can you recognize signs if you just have the image from the camera? And so, you know, there are ways to search for images and people use machine learning and filters and stuff like that. So that there's a whole bunch of stuff that way for, for signs and signals and any of the things that, that we look at to tell us what's going on. 
in parallel, there is work to say, how do we make those uniform and how do we make those kind of either broadcast? So maybe the sign has some radio frequency tag on it. Now that hasn't taken off because it's very expensive or at least it's painted and built in a way that's easier to spot. And, and there's a lot of interesting things, you know, if you read, this is in the weeds, but if you read enough, uh, you begin to realize that we can see a sign, there's a vis visible spectrum for humans, but you know, cameras can see stuff that we can't, kind of like how alligators and dogs can hear things that we can't. And you do, you do hear some kind of whispers about building those things so that they're easier for cameras, and it takes a lot of imagination. But that's just like the question that came up earlier about replacing vehicles. Are we going to replace the entire inventory of our signage? Well, you had better be darn sure that that solution you've come up with or that standard is going to, is going to stand the test of time because we're not going to do it again in 10 years when some technology changes. So there, there's a lot of discussion in the background about how to do that. And so, so anyway, yeah, there's just recognizing what we have. There's changing what we have to make it more recognizable, but that takes a lot of thought and we're not there yet. And the third one is back to the connected vehicle thing where the infrastructure is broadcasting stuff to you and you might not even need a sign. We need a sign as humans, but if you only had automated vehicles, you wouldn't necessarily bother with that. As long as the broadcasting was okay, you would kind of see all the signs disappear. I don't know that that's ever gonna happen, but that is the way that the connected vehicle people talk about it. That anything you would wanna queue up to a human driver by posting a sign somewhere to make them aware of it is just gonna show up in a, you know, a message packet, you know, every 10th of a second. So it is, it is interesting that, again, it cuts both ways. Do we invest a whole bunch of money in a new kind of signage that cooperates with automated vehicle, or do we not have to invest anything because we're going to have a connected system? And I cannot tell you which one of those is going to happen. And we can talk more about that, but, it, but we are very much at a fork in the road. And um, the technical stuff we know, but the regulatory part is at an impasse. Uh, and it was interesting. I studied up for this broadcast about exactly where it is these days. And um, <laughs> you have some very impatient people uh, <laughs> on the connected vehicle side and a very binary view of of the whole thing. And so so, I, you know, I'd say for the last three years or so, we've known what to do to go forward, but we've been in this regulatory impasse. And so we've just been kind of stuck. For the automated vehicle people, it would be really, really great to know what connected stuff they can expect. They can't, they just can't. So meanwhile, you've got people just trying to make the best they can out of the onboard sensors because it's the only thing they can count on right now. I wasn't expecting Steve to talk about alligators or dogs today, especially <laughs> when it came to hearing and not a smoothness factor between the difference of alligators and, and dogs. And speaking of smoothness and let's talk ride quality as well. Is there any difference that you see between the automated vehicles with a current vehicle? Yeah, there will be. Uh, some of it's going to be kind of subtle and it kind of cuts both ways. So one thing is that if you watch the way people develop automated vehicles, so we've been talking about sensing, but you know, they're sort of perceiving the environment, but then it's what do you do, right? So there's control. And if you look at the way people develop that control stuff, you know, they want safe, safety's number one, don't, don't hit other things, you know, don't put yourself in a risky situation to begin with. But the way they manage the speed and the steering control is meant to also be, uh, or at least uh, acknowledge that there's a comfort aspect to it. So in other words, you know, if you're going to do an automated lane change or you're going to keep someone inside a lane, you don't want to do jerky things either with a steering wheel or the throttle or the brakes. And so that's kind of, you know, it's get a, it's a little bit of waiting in their decision about how to do things. So you might, like if you're somebody who hears a lot of complaints or, or you drive with someone and 
and you say, oh, this is a jerky driver. You're making me car sick. You know, why do you got to race up to a, a red light and then slam on the brakes? That's sort of, I mean, everyone thinks that they're smooth and the other person when they're not driving is not smooth. So these vehicles are trying hard not to do that. But there's another side of it, uh, which is that the size and weight and layout of these vehicles is going to begin to change, right? So some of them might get heavier. You're putting more sensors on board and they might change configuration. And when you get to the ones that don't have to have a driver compartment, right? Now, another sort of in the weed secret about ride quality is that for years, there have been rules about how to design an automobile so that the row of seats at the front where the driver is gets the best comfort. And the, the second row of seats does get something a little worse. And if you're anyone who you know, drove to Disneyland in the back of a station wagon with sort of the wood panel on the side and you were facing backward in the back, you were in big trouble. So if you all, you know, if you're my father's age and you wonder why your kids always wanted to throw up is because the car is designed to make you pretty comfortable as a driver, but the person two rows back is in big trouble. Well, now all of a sudden there's no, there's no dominant position, right? And so you see all these vehicles that can drive forward and backward. So they're symmetrical. Well, that has consequences to the way they ride. And you've got automated shuttles that are very different. Of course, they don't go very fast. So you don't have to worry. And the, the configuration changes are, are going to be kind of hard to predict. Something I've always thought, you know, if you look at the way uh, heavy trucks were designed before all the size and weight stuff was decided, but they had a limit on length, but they had this box full of cargo, right? And that's, that's the payload, emphasis on pay. And so you had these really short cabins with cab over engine because you were trying to jam the driver into as little a space as you could to carry as much freight as you could. Well, if you have a fully automated truck and you don't have to optimize for getting the driver to carry as much stuff as you want, now all of a sudden you could have much smaller trucks. So, and I could probably convince people that that's going to happen, but I don't know either. I mean, I can imagine this thing where as long as you're not carrying a cargo container, because you're not going to split that. But after the thing comes in and the cargo container gets unloaded, you could have much smaller automated vehicles that carry one or two pallets. And the neat thing about that is you don't have to unload them at the dock. They can drive right into the warehouse, right? Now, that's one vision of how things may turn out. I don't really know. But I think you will, um, because of the, the passenger cabin being missing and because for commercial applications, you're not necessarily paying a driver. Uh, we're not exactly sure how the size and weight stuff's going to change. But that's sort of a whole new era where all the old rules of thumb for how to uh, have good ride quality are going to have to be reinvented. And we'll see. And people will get it wrong at the beginning. That always happens. Another thing I saw in the connected vehicle environment that people have talked about is the road can tell you if it's rough. And yeah, I mean, you talk to a motorcycle driver and say, what do you think about potholes? Well, I don't drive on a pothole. You know, they can go around the potholes. And so that, that's a pretty specific thing and cars aren't great at them now, but you may find that automated vehicles are better at choosing routes or at least um, picking their speed more carefully in a place where things are so severe that they might damage the rim on a vehicle or something. That's all conjecture now. I mean, we have systems that'll do it, but I, I haven't seen that commercially yet. Sure. So size, weight, uh, uh, potholes in the road uh, for autonomous drivers. What are some of the changes that need to be made to roadways and infrastructure to accommodate these future autonomous vehicles? Yeah, well, it is interesting. So the, the markings and signage is huge. We already talked about that. You know, very clear markings, um, signage that can at least be seen and interpreted or maybe specialized signage that's meant for AV sensors. That, that's gigantic. And, you know, we talked about connected vehicles. They're either going to invest in that communication infrastructure or not, and they're going to break the impasse about how to do it and the wave ban. And ask me again if you want more specifics on that, but it's currently a problem. 
there is a little bit more pressure, I think, that's going to happen on not having rutted roads, having roads that drain really well. There's going to be a little more pressure on having roads that are not as rough. You know, there's other there's other secondary consequences that we put all these expensive sensors on a vehicle. Um, I might be upset if I had a pothole and it spills my coffee a little bit, but you know, if it breaks a $10,000 sensor, that's kind of a big deal. The other thing is if your road has enough roughness in it um, or problems of that type, your sensors, you know, the vehicle pitches and rolls and your sensors don't point as well as they do. And I, I know from my own work on fusion of what those sensors are, are uh, picking up that, that it would help very much if you had a magical floating platform that didn't tilt and didn't pitch. And when you slammed on the brakes, it didn't lean forward. Because now you're, you know, your sensors are moving around. So if you got all these neat algorithms for tracking an object, it's say, oh, that is that object moving up? Objects don't move up off the road. Well, it didn't move up. Your camera got pointed down. And so it causes those kind of difficulties. So it is interesting. I think you will see more pressure on that, that stuff. You know, can we make the road smoother? Um, uh, can we make sure that the road is less slick and not rut? And that brings up another thing that comes up a lot when you read about this, which is uh, platooning, right? So if you look at these lanes, even the ones that are at the level two or level one, the lane assist systems, right now, different auto companies have different ways of doing it. Some of them will let you bang around in the lane because it wakes you up. It says, hey, pay attention. Some of them will make you go right down the center of the lane. And what I found is it makes your arms feel heavy. Like, holy cow, I know I need to stay vigilant, but I don't have to do this anymore. But for trucks, trucks are wider. And so when you platoon a truck, it's, it's trying to, so right down the middle, because there's not a lot of room for air. And so what you see in a lot of the literature, I haven't seen this proven, but it's certainly, you can make the, the engineering case that now you're going to rut the pavement faster because everybody's right in the middle. They're all driving over that same little bit of the road. And so all that deformation is going to happen in one place. So the road will wear out sooner, but you know maybe a more detrimental thing is you get to a position where um, water collects in the ruts and then that kind of has a detrimental effect on the safety function. So is there going to be more pressure to have mixes mixed designs and things that are resistant to rutting or but that's another thing that'll take a generation to do so so that that does come up quite a bit you know still markings and signage still sort of wins and these other things are uh, get talked about quite a bit and then there will be things that we can't predict um again line of sight that they're probably more pressure one thing i've i've heard in places but i haven't read it anywhere is if we are relying on our cameras to read signs then there's going to be a lot more pressure on people to, or agencies to get rid of um, uh, foliage and stuff, branches. You know, I know when I drive home, if a tree is covering the speed limit sign, what it was, because I've seen it once. The automated vehicle might not, or at least you don't want to be the one liable for putting up a sign that the automated vehicle can't read. And there is probably already budget allocated for that sort of a thing, but it might suddenly get a lot more pressure on it. So what you're saying is no matter how far we advance with our autonomous vehicles, engineers, researchers are always going to have the next challenge of creating the infrastructure to match what our future vehicles look like. Yeah, absolutely. I, either we will just have learned more or some technology change will just change the game. You know, the reason I'm, I, I've mentioned markings like 15 times already is because we're using cameras to decide where we are in a lane. Somebody's going to invent, you know, some new thing and people are not going to care about market. There was a short era where um, auto companies were working hard to be able to automatically detect through vibrations in the wheel, the presence of rumble strips. And then all of a sudden they just stopped. They said, no, cameras are good enough to see lane edges. We're not going to mess around with the rumble strips 
because you're already in trouble by the time you feel the rumble strips, right? So there, there might come a day where any of the stuff that I told you is just going to change. You know, what I said is completely invalid because the tech has changed and the, the, the prevailing approach has changed. And so if you're somebody in the infrastructure business, yeah, you need to keep your head on a swivel. You need to read the, you know, the new stuff that's coming out in, in trade magazines and newspaper articles, I don't know, AV Monthly or whatever, because, uh, um, and, and so that, that's a very hard question for DOTs, certainly, is when do we know that it's safe to make this investment and we won't have to make the investment all over again? That, that's it's a very tough question. And the connected vehicle problem is, is a huge example of that, that you had people gearing up like crazy until about 2018 and it just stopped because auto companies and DOTs alike are kind of waiting for regulatory certainty. Then, you know, regulatory certainty, uh, if you go up high enough is a political thing. So, you know, it kind of never lasts more than four years. You know, you mentioned as we kind of go down the road, there's going to be new and additional types of infrastructure assets that DOTs, cities, counties, whoever are going to have to deal with. What other things do you think there are that are going to need to be managed as autonomous vehicles become a bit more mainstream? Yeah, there's there's a lot. Again, it's hard to predict them. Some that I think are going to happen for sure, and you can already see, like in a in a dense urban area. You know, I'm in a university town, so this is already sort of starting, in part because of bicycles and electronic bicycles. But uh, with autonomous vehicles, you you don't expect them to necessarily need a place to park, but you need do need a place for them to pull up, kind of near the place that you wanted to go, and get out. And so you know, we have bus stops right now, but they're pretty far apart. There's going to be a lot more pressure on just using the urban roadsides to have fewer lanes where there's actually traffic and a lot more places for an autonomous vehicle to stop and have people load and unload, that, that sort of a thing. That's going to happen for sure. And you might even find out that there'll be um, AV only areas where, you know, there's several street blocks where you can ride a bike, um, but you can't drive your own sort of personal car here and there. So that's going to happen for sure. Uh, you know, another thing that's sort of adjacent to this is electrification. And that comes up a lot. It's not, you know, you could have automated and connected vehicles without electric vehicles, and you could have electric vehicles without CAVs and AVs, but it's going to happen simultaneously. So there's going to come a point, you know, measured in a single digit number of years where there's charging stations all over the place. I can look out my window and there's a charging station for the university shuttle out there. You know, it just kind of pulls up on its own. It still needs a human to plug it in. You know, those uh, particularly now when we don't have batteries with a lot of range or at least batteries with a with a very heavy amount of range are expensive you can't put those on the edge of town you're going to kind of need some of them at least sprinkled around all over the place and it's also you know if you if you say oh, i have an automated vehicle system that's going to serve everybody in the whole city you need to optimize downtime right and so the vehicles it's going to cart everybody around until about 10 in the morning. And then it's not going to want to drive really far away to go to the charging station to stop wherever it is, where all the people are charge. And then at four 30 or something, when everybody starts taking off, it's going to, you know, they're all going to come into town. They're not going to want to leave town to charge and come back. They're going to charge. And then when everybody needs them to sort of go away from the dense area. So, so you'll see, you'll see that quite a bit. Those are a couple things that you'll see in the, the change in infrastructure. And again, it'll go back to, Pressure on signage and marking, we've already talked about that. Um, there's another kind of interesting thing that might affect some people in the infrastructure business, which is, been right now, you know, General Motors has an OnStar system and they're very guarded with their data, right? But they know where the rough roads are. They know where the slick roads are. They know where the accidents happen. They're careful to protect their customers. And so you can't get access to that. But the, the more of these kind of automated vehicles that are going to happen, the more opportunity there's going to be to kind of crowdsource data. 
uh, you would not replace some of the, the project level functions of asset management. You know, if you really need good measurements, to decide how to invest money, you're still going to go out to a trouble spot or a place where you're going to spend money and do good measurements of friction or smoothness or texture or whatever. But you may have this really strange crowdsourced database that says, you know, hey, I think you're starting to have a little bit of trouble over here. So it might, might sort of determine where you go and make the assessment. Thinking about how infrastructure changes, um, infrastructure management is going to change because of, and, and you see examples of that already, but that's, that's going to become routine in the next decade, I would say. Yeah, and as we look down that, that decade scope, you know, you kind of mentioned some things that, that kind of got me excited about what is the potential for this. And, you know, we talked earlier about the chicken or the egg, you know, the connected cars versus, you know, the new technology of the older cars. So we don't necessarily have to, I'm not necessarily going to ask you, when are we going to see AVs all over the road? Because that's such a difficult question to ask and, and, and to interpret and figure out. But so what gets you excited? Let's just say that what gets you excited about the future of autonomous vehicles? For me, it's all the nerdly stuff, right? Is the the sensing and the um, how do you perceive the environment and what do you do, that sort of a thing. I, I do really think there's some opportunity here. And so I don't know if I would say I'm excited, but I'm optimistic that you could use the emergence of automated vehicles or at least more automation and more connection to kind of make things better for everybody, if you know what I mean. I mean, right right now it looks like something that uh, if you can pay the extra money, you know, another five or 10 grand, you can get these really cool features in a car. Well, that's not very accessible to everybody else. But if we manage this just right, you know, you could provide benefits that is a many times improvement on your investment, you know, a really good return on investment for just sort of making transportation available to everybody. You know what I mean? I don't have to buy a car and insure it. I can sort of pay as I go for movement. I can maybe not have to move around as much. Uh, it's not as expensive for me because I don't need a place to park. Things will get a little bit more efficient because we can share rides more easily and stuff. So if people can balance the kind of uh, autonomy um, versus access sort of a thing, if we do it right as engineers, we can serve the public really well. We're not, we're not there yet, but, but you can really see the opportunity. Um, in other words, you can kind of lift up people who have less access to things, can do it in a way that kind of makes things better for everyone. You, you know what I mean? Like a lot of times you have in society arguments about um, we're trying to help folks that need help, but it's going to cost me something. If the engineers do their job right, and I'm one of those people, so I better help deliver, everybody gets lifted at the same time. You know what I mean? We're just, we're a more efficient society. We can spend our money better because we're not wasting it in dumb ways. Everybody benefits. We're sort of more efficient as a group. Everybody can participate. So that I have some optimi optimism about that. At the same time, I, I, this will sound a little bit snarky and less uplifting. I, I have fun trying to think about what's going to survive. I mean, these things come in waves. You know, I, my career started in 1990. It was all IVHS. And if you read some of the stuff they said was going to happen back then, none of it's going to happen. But some of it did. I was reading an article written um, by somebody about an automated highway. And it was all going to happen really soon. They wrote it as if it was already going to occur and they were just figuring out. And I looked at the bottom of the thing and it said, Highway Research Board 50th anniversary. Well, we're past the 100th anniversary now. <laughs> and one of the references there, I'll read this to you, was called Radar Breaking is Set for Market Debut. So that was 1960. Well, it did make a market debut in 1990. So <laughs> it is fun to kind of sit back and, and try to figure out what of all the things we're talking about now is really going to happen. But, but it is a great time. I mean, it's a time of change. So if you're if you're somebody who's kind of got a nice thing going, you need to, like I said, you need to keep your head on a swivel because there's an opportunity to, to 
leverage what's going on for the next nice thing, but you really got to pay attention. Things are going to change fast. And, um, you know, may you live in interesting times has been voiced as a curse a lot. My, in this case, I, I just think, yeah, there's, there's a chance to do a lot of good here and there's a chance to do a lot of fun engineering things, whether it's for good or not. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, but you better be paying attention. You know, I was, I'm being snarky about 1960, this happened in 1990. Things are going to change faster now than they did. The connected vehicle issue is one, um, which way that sort of goes has a lot to do with at least what's going to happen over the next five years. Steve, I'm excited to circle back with you in five to 10 years and we'll listen back to this and we'll see where we are then. And then we'll talk about the next challenges that, that are going to come for the flying cars whenever we get those, right? Because those are, those are clearly next. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun, you know, to, to get ready for this conversation. I, I For fun, I kind of look back at YouTube stuff from five years ago. And some people were right on the money and some were not. And, and it's, you notice I was careful about making predictions. Uh, yes. It is tough. So, you know, I mean, saying, gee, a lot of cool stuff's going to happen and things will change. You could say that, it, you know, pretty generic, but, it, but I do really believe it. You know, right now we're not anywhere near leveraging the connected technology that we have and the sensing technology that we have. So uh, there's, a, there's a chance for a lot of nice things to happen now. And it, yeah, it would be great to look back like I said, do a time capsule thing, you know, in five years, what really did happen and what didn't? And well, you know, what frustrating barrier do we have then? Uh, there's always something, you know. Steve, I look forward to having that chat again with you <laughs> down the road. Uh, but for today, thanks for, for diving into the weeds of autonomous vehicles with me. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Appreciate it. If you want to learn more about transportation asset management strategies that save time, money, and lives, head on over to agileassets.com. Once again, thank you to Steve Karameas for sharing his expertise with us today. I'm Nick Frank. Join us again next month for another edition of Move Your Assets.